I enjoy reading. Uh, I have been reading for a long, long time. When I was a kid, my parents bought the World Book Encyclopedia. And then the uh, salesperson that sat in our house and, saw, and talked about the, all the benefits of the World Book Encyclopedia, which for selling my parents on it wasn't hard. My parents were very much into education and all. But they also bought the Childcraft How and Why Library. I think it was 28 volumes. I read every volume from cover to cover. In fact, one year for Christmas, I asked for a light over my bed so I could read. Oftentimes, I was told, Scott, put the book away. It's time to go to bed. Uh, and uh, so my mind is filled with all kinds of useless trivia because I read the How and Why Library from cover to cover. I love to read. And, and, and it's pretty good thing because part of what I do as a pastor is I do a lot of reading. Obviously, I read my Bible. I read books and articles and journals that help me grow as a, as a pastor and help me to grow to understand the Bible more. I will read legal thrillers. I have read everything that John Grisham has ever written because, as my wife and I say, sometimes you just need some brain candy, you know, just something that you just enjoy that's not going to be anything other than for enjoyment. I've been reading books with a, a local pastor's reading group here from a, 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 a scholar named Andrew Root, and it's really kind of revolutionized some of our thinking and helped us to see how the church can still be very, and is very vital in the 21st century. And sometimes I read books that will help me understand people and culture better. This past fall, I began to read a very thick, lengthy book entitled, The Body Keeps the Score. And the, the subtitle is Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It was written by a scholar, a Harvard-trained um, scholar. His name is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a good uh, Dutch name. This is not a speed-read type of book. I started reading it this fall, and I'm probably about a third of the way through. And I've been mesmerized as I read this book and just amazed at, at the power of our human brain. I mean, that we talk about it as being a computer and all, and I think that's a good way to say it. When we look at the amazing brain that God has compared, has, has created, and we look at how that brain is part of this whole thing we call the body, and how it all works, and how the brain responds to stimuli, and how it responds to life, and how it responds to circumstances, both good and bad. It, it, it's just amazing. This is one of those books where every several pages I'm stopping and doing one of two things. Either I'm looking up definitions of neurological terms so I can understand them, or I'm going to Charlene and going, what? Get this. Let me, let me tell you about this. And, and she's very patient with me. Uh, just one thing I've learned that I think relates to what we're going to look at here in Matthew 5 as we take into this second aspect of these core values of a, a Christ follower. Um, our body is a unit. You know, the Apostle Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12. The body is one. Our body is a unit. And our brain deals 
every second with a myriad of stimuli and processes. Uh, The fact that we're sitting here thinking right now, you are taking in the sound of my voice and you are taking in the things that I'm saying and these ideas, you're, you're computing them. And sometimes you might be relating them to something that you've gone through or something that, that you're aware of. It's, it's happening. And, and all this happened at the same time. You know, when we are healthy, we not only are thinking and aware, we become self-aware. We're, we're aware of ourselves in this moment. Some people who've struggled with things sometimes will dissociate, and they'll be in the room, and they might hear my voice, but they're, they're not there because their mind is elsewhere. It happens. And, and interesting, in nanoseconds, our brain knows whether to order white blood cells to go to a place where we cut ourselves. You know, I shave every morning and every now and then I get a little nick. Just that way, that little nick. And the brain says, we got a problem. We got to deal with this. Our our brain will tell us in nanoseconds whether we fight or whether we run or whether we freeze. It's it's amazing. And, and, And so we're this unit and our inner spiritual, emotional self is part of the entire amazing entity that we call the body. How we think about and how we respond to spiritual stimuli, what we choose to believe and how we respond to God and to people doesn't happen in some kind of a vacuum. It is part and parcel of the reality of who we are as human beings created in the image of God. As Jesus sat down to teach his disciples and others that were around these core values of one following him he was teaching people who had in many ways been oppressed and stressed out by rules and regulations that were often confusing and contradictory while jesus may have at times been mysterious and may have been times been purposefully mysterious he was not oppressive or confusing or contradictory and what jesus did in these moments is he started taking conventional wisdom he started taking those human assumptions and he began to turn it upside down what i mean is he looked at the assumptions made by the religious leaders that had been used to oppress the people and he showed them how god wasn't like that and he should know he is in the beginning with god from eternity past let me give you just one quick review and then we'll move into what we have remember the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven The human assumption that prevailed at that time that so many people believed that was kind of pushed by the religious leaders was this. God is in control, and since God is in control, God blesses those who adhere to his rules, and that blessing is shown by material wealth. The more the wealthier you are, then you the more full of God's blessing you are, because wealth equals God's blessing. The more, the more things change, the more they remain the same. There's still some that believe that and teach that. 
And to prove that principle, it just so happens many of the Pharisees were wealthy. So see, we follow all of our rules that we made up and we follow them perfectly and we have also learned ways around our rules so that we can still follow them. And look, we're rich, so see, that's what it does. So what's Jesus do? He comes along and his first core value is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden he takes that assumption that wealth somehow and he turns it upside down. Jesus isn't saying you have to be poor financially. He's simply stating that in one sense, if your heart condition is such that you think that God is impressed with your wealth, then you don't know God and you don't have part of his inheritance. On the flip side, if your heart condition is such that you think that if you pridefully get rid of your wealth and become professionally poor, that then God's impressed then you don't know God. Those who know God know that they're blessed by God because of his good grace and humility, and they realize they come to him empty-handed. So with that in mind, hope your Bibles are already at Matthew chapter 5, and let's look at what I would say are the second half of the opening core values from Jesus. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to show you the contrast between what the prevailing thought was and what Jesus is saying. But here's the way I would summarize this. As a follower of Jesus, I am to be proactively compassionate. The assumption of the day was that God's mercy was reserved for those who adhered to God's standards of righteousness as determined by the religious leaders. In other words, if your behavior reflects the rules that the Pharisees have added to the commandments, then God will be merciful to you. God's mercy is dependent on your behavior, which flies in the face of the whole definition of what mercy is. Mercy was conditional. Later in his ministry, it's recorded in Luke chapter 10, Jesus would give everybody an example that is one of the most popular stories in the Bible that has lasted. In fact, there are laws on the books of different places called Good Samaritan laws. And those are laws to protect you. If you stop to help someone, you are protected from some kind of a lawsuit if things didn't go well, but you were doing your your best to help them. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story Jesus tells when someone asks him, one, what are the two most important, what are the most important commands? And Jesus said, well, how do you read it? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, You've said well. And then Luke says, wanting to justify himself, he asks, who's my neighbor? And that's where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story of the Good Samaritan is such that when the Good Samaritan comes down from Jerusalem on the road to Jericho, and he sees this man beaten half to death with all of his belongings taken, and the Good Samaritan stops The pastor didn't stop, the deacon didn't stop, the elder didn't stop, but the Good Samaritan stopped, and he takes care of him. Had that man been conscious, 
Had he known that it was a Samaritan helping him, he would have refused the help. And Jesus goes on and says, that's what mercy looks like. Because at the end of the story, he turns to the lawyer and he says, or the, who asked the question, he says, which one was the neighbor? And the man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. People who are merciful are proactively compassionate, just like that man was. A person who is merciful sees other people through a godly lens. You see, a proud, merciless person sees other people as either stepping stones to get to where I think I want to go or obstacles to be removed so I can get to where I want to go. But mercy, a person who is proactive in their compassion, mercy seeks to understand another person. The fact is we all have our stories. We all have Life stories, where we've been, life stories that we've gone through, things that have been good, things that haven't been so good. We all have a past, and a merciful person is not only aware of their own past, they're also willing to work with another's past to hear it and not judge them for it. Mercy is something that looks to meet the needs of another person when there's a need there, but does it in a way that that person maintains their dignity. Mercy cares. Mercy sacrifices. Mercy feels. We just read from Luke 6. Later on, Luke would say this, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In other words, they will receive mercy. We're reminded of God's mercy in our lives, and when we remind, are reminded of God's mercy in our lives and the fact that we've been shown mercy, it causes us to show mercy. When we show mercy, we're reminded that we've already received mercy. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells about a servant who was forgiven an immense debt, and a debt that's, that's millions and millions of dollars in today's money. And then he walks out the door from where he's been forgiven this debt, and the king had called for the debt now, pay it now. And he, said, and he begged the king to let him go, and the king forgave the entire debt. He didn't just say, you can pay it later. He wiped it off the books. And the man goes outside, and there's a guy that owes him about $1,000. And he grabs him, and he starts shaking him by the, by the, the, the lapels, and he, and he begins to choke him and says, pay me all you want. And the guy says, have mercy, give me time. And the guy says, no way, and he throws him into the debtor's prison. And when the king hears about it, he is livid. I showed you mercy and forgave something you could never pay back. Why didn't you show this person mercy? And the reminder here is when I refuse to be merciful, I can't imagine a God who has mercy. When I refuse to be merciful, I get in my own, in my own way of even trying to understand God's mercy. Because when I somehow think I deserve mercy because I've missed the point of being poor in spirit, 
then I won't display mercy. Mercy displayed is ultimately mercy received. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Their mercy will be, will be rewarded. He goes on, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. As a follower of Jesus, my loyalty is to God and his path. That's what I believe pure in heart means. It's it's that purity, that loyalty. The word pure is a word that describes that which is refined, that which is cleansed. It also is a word that describes that which is authentic, that which is real. It's not somebody who's perfect, but it's someone who deals with stuff as it arises and cleans it out. It's a heart issue. When one lets God clean out their heart, when individually we take a good look about who we are and, we, and we're honest about what we know is not right in us, what we know needs to change, and then we take steps to make those changes, we begin to also see God for who he, he is. Because as we are changing, we should be changing to become more like him. And it's a step-by-step process. When we see God for who He is, we experience Him in our lives. When we see God for who He is, we look around. We can see God at work. We experience God in, in ways that cause us to maybe to want to follow Him more as He leads. I find myself more and more saying, Thank you, Lord, as opposed to saying, well, I made that good decision. You know, uh, I find myself giving God more credit than myself. Not 100%, not perfectly. But the fact of the matter is, God is always at work in big and small ways. And it's only when we let him clean us up and we let him cleanse us that we see him. Now, the conventional wisdom to which Jesus was speaking was a a wisdom of outward actions. It was a religion, as it were. It was an outward act religion. And not that the outward acts are wrong, but the outward acts have to come from the right place. You see, it's easy to look good and sound good and act good in public. It's easy to think that if I just do the right things, I'm good with God. When, when surveys have been taken of people and they ask, what's your favorite Bible verse? It's amazing the high percentage of people say, my favorite Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. There's a problem with that. It's nowhere in the Bible at all. Because I can't help myself most of the time. I I need help. And so when I think that, well, if I just do all the right things, then I'm good with God. You know, that's the other thing. I've had so many people tell me, I just know that I've done good things and I've done bad things. And when I stand before the apostle, before Peter at the pearly gates, there's a scale there. He's going to put all my good things in the scale on this side and all my bad things here. And if my good things outweigh the bad, then I'm in. Well, once again, you're never going to find that in the Bible. In fact, the 
Isaiah says all of our righteousness, all of our human goodness is as filthy rags. I only come to God on his terms. And so Paul says, or Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who realize that God is about the inner person first. The inside affects the outside. And he says they're pure in heart. The metaphor of the heart is the metaphor that means the core part of who we are. It's a metaphor that, taught, that, that, that speaks to our inner motivation, uh, our inner um, emotion, our personality. When our heart is right, when it's pure, when it's cleansed, when we can see God work, when we can sense that God is in our lives, that God is doing something, and we give him the credit for our good decisions, then we discover that we see him more. See, one thing I've learned about myself, something I've learned to gauge, when I start getting cynical, and it's kind of my nature to be cynical, but when I find myself getting cynical, when I, when I begin to really believe that I'm the only one who really cares about ministry, about this church, about anything, that nobody else cares, that I'm the only one that cares, I'm the only one that does anything, I'm the only one, then all of a sudden my focus isn't on God. My focus is on poor old me. And when my focus is on poor old me, I get cynical, I get surly, I get grumpy, I get hard to live with because I'm not focused on the right thing and my heart is becoming tainted. It's not pure. I can't even see God and his work in the lives of others, let alone my own life, because I've turned my focus to me. The pure in heart see God. And I'm going to tell you, if I don't stop and ask forgiveness for my surly attitude, then the next step is often to start making excuses well, this is who I am. This is who God made me to be. I can't change. I just have to be who I am. I can't change is a lie that Satan foists on so many people. And when I say I can't change, then I've moved further from failing to see God. Because my focus, again, is on managing my image, managing my framework of what I want to do instead of saying, Lord... Change me. There is a true sincerity to one who's pure in heart. There is a true sincerity to one who's committed and loyal to following God's path. There is a humility that is part and parcel of this whole thing, and it really comes all the way back to blessed are the poor in spirit. When I realize I bring nothing to the table, it brings a humility that flows through everything else. Jesus isn't done. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As a follower of Jesus, I should strive to be a reconciler. Notice carefully, Jesus doesn't say peacekeepers. He says peacemakers. A peacekeeper requires force. You know, when there's uh, a... Conflict, sometimes we'll hear on the news that a United Nations peacekeeping force was sent. Then the peacekeeping force rolls in with tanks and with big old guns and everything. They're a force. They're here to keep the peace no matter what. 
Peacekeeping requires force, but a peacemaker is active in bringing reconciliation. It takes great courage and great strength of character to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker sometimes has to wade into the middle of the yuck of people's lives. And peacemakers aren't just counselors and therapists. Peacemakers can be anyone. Because sometimes we're the one that ends up between two family members trying to bring them together. That's a peacemaker. Sometimes we're between two friends trying to bring them together. That's a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who lives sometimes in the uncomfortable middle and tries to bring opposing parties together. And a peacemaker is one who in their own life lives peacefully. But don't hear me say that a peacemaker is a people pleaser. Sometimes when you are a peacemaker, either side turns against you. And they, they, you become the target. And you have to be willing to take that. It takes God-like insight as a peacemaker to see when someone may not want to be part of a reconciliation process. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers reflect the character of God. How? Remember Romans 5.1? Therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent to come to this earth to die on the cross for our sins so that through him God could make peace with those of us who had strayed from him. When we live peacefully, peacemaking flows from us. Because Philippians 4, 7 tells us after we've been anxious for nothing, after we've told everything to God in prayer, then the peace of God guards our hearts and minds when we tell him our concerns. Hebrews 13, 20 reminds us at the very end of that great book that the God of peace will equip us. A peacemaker must have a relationship with God They must have that personal peace that comes from a relationship with God or they can't be used of God to be that reconciling agent. A peacemaker actively seeks to live with those around them in peace. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, don't miss that. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. You and I should not be the ones stirring up stuff. We should not be the ones stirring up trouble. We should be the ones who, if necessary, know when to wade into a situation and know when to step out. Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's interesting, I find that the very next beatitude goes to the very opposite end of the spectrum. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
As a follower of Jesus, I adhere to righteousness no matter the cost. Righteousness is simply defined as proper conduct before God. Persecution because of righteousness is what I've seen some call undeserved persecution. What Jesus is not telling us to do is to go out and to actively try to get persecuted, to actively seek persecution, to go out and stir up trouble just for the sake of stirring up trouble so we can go, oh, I'm being so persecuted. Jesus is not telling us to make ourselves a nuisance so that we get persecuted. Jesus is not telling us to, to, to go out and, and be so out front in supporting some sort of agenda or theory or anything else that all of a sudden people are against us. It seems like no accident here that persecution follows peacemaking. When you're being a righteous person, when you're being a person that does right things before God, it will happen. You don't have to make persecution happen. It'll happen in one way, shape, or form. You see, a righteous person might find persecution for, and be penalized in some way for being a person of integrity. I, I remember reading once about an individual who worked as a waiter, uh, trying to work his way through school, and when it came tax time, he reported his tips even the cash tips. And he found himself having every other staff member in that restaurant against him because if he reported his cash tips and they didn't because, hey, it's cash, I don't have to report that, then there was going to be problems. That's persecuted. He did the right thing and he found himself on the wrong side of relationships. That's what we're talking about. A righteous person may be persecuted for standing up for injustice in some way and for taking a stand. A righteous person may be persecuted for standing up for someone who's vulnerable, who no longer has a voice for themselves. There are so many ways that when we do the right thing, although we know it's the right thing before God, there are always going to be people out in our culture who say, <laughs> no way, man, you're, you, you're against me if you're doing that. Jesus, interesting, says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the second time we've said that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you stand for God in a culture that is ungodly, you understand that the world you live in is not the world you were made for. There is another kingdom. Now, don't think that it's, you know, oh great, I don't have to, I can just wait to that other kingdom. No, God's kingdom, as we talked about last week, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom of heaven is, is right here in our midst. It's not visible. It's not seen by all. But we are in the already in the kingdom of heaven as we let God's principles rule our life in the present. We're living the kingdom of heaven. But there's also a not yet. There's the already. There's the not yet. Yes, a day is coming. 
A day is coming when Jesus will return. A day is coming when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we won't get to go to heaven because we won't need to go to heaven. We live in the new earth. We'll live in the new earth with Jesus and it will be amazing. But that day isn't here yet. So this is the day where we live kingdom principles as we wait for the new heaven and the new earth. But notice how it changes. On Wednesday nights, by the way, this Wednesday night, be on um, Google Meet, but you can also come here and brave the weather. We're talking, we talk a lot about reading for detail. And I want you to notice the, the change here. Listen to this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all evil kinds against evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you do you notice the shift in pronouns from three through ten it's those blessed are the poor in spirit it's general it's it's what they call third person but all of a sudden it becomes second person there's a shift in the pronoun it now becomes you. It becomes a little more personal. I honestly can see in my mind's eye, and we know from Matthew's gospel, that there were at least four named uh, followers of Jesus, Peter and Andrew and James and John. I wonder if he looked directly at them. That's, that's that shift. And, and notice the difference in, in, in uh, chapter in verse 10, it's persecuted because of righteousness, because of doing the right thing. But now here, it's persecuted because of Jesus. You see, as a follower of Jesus, I am committed to the values of Jesus. When one chooses the person of Jesus, then the life and values of Jesus that they follow is going to cause them to swim upstream against the prevailing culture. Jesus swam upstream against the prevailing culture. He came as one who followed, and we'll see that later on in Matthew 5, he came and he followed the law. He followed it perfectly, but because his following the law didn't fit with all of the additional things that the Pharisees had added to the law to try to protect the law, then he was called a lawbreaker. He was swimming upstream. That will happen because following Jesus has always been controversial and it's always been countercultural, and it continues to be so. We need to know that sometimes the way of Jesus is also sometimes contrary to those who claim to follow Jesus, but do so in their own way and their own power. You see, some claim to follow Jesus, and they do it in such a, a grandiose way that others think it's really cool, and they do it because it gives them power or influence or wealth. But that is not the way of Jesus. When we truly follow the way of Jesus, we love God with all of our being, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We show mercy. We're peacemakers. It will ruffle feathers. The path of Jesus sometimes will bring hardship. The path of Jesus will sometimes bring ridicule. The path of Jesus will sometimes bring pain because no one likes someone else by their behavior to show them that they are not maybe right. 
No one else wants someone who's honest and, and, is in, and follows integrity at work. Say, you know, come on, quit making me look bad, man. We don't want that. It's easier to put down, it's easier to try to silence another than to admit, maybe I'm the one that needs to change. When we live by the values of the kingdom of heaven, outlined here in what's called the Beatitudes, we will sometimes face hardship. It is then that the commitment to the values of Jesus and the commitment to the kingdom values that he teaches are going to be tested. But I don't want to leave you in a state of being down or sad because I think there's a huge upside to living the values of the kingdom of heaven right now. See, when you and I allow God to do his life-changing, transforming work in our lives, when we get out of our own way and stop just trying to perform, when we begin, then, then we start to begin to experience what, what the blessings of God are, experience His, His favor. It's then when we realize and we humble ourselves and we understand that we are accepted by our Heavenly Father and we understand that it's through Jesus that He makes us acceptable, then we understand that in God's eyes through Jesus we have worth, we have value. We have purpose. It's then that we can rest in knowing that while we desire to be people of humility and compassion and peace and kindness, we have a Heavenly Father who's already given us everything we need to grow in Him. He, Peter says it in 1 Peter. He, through Him we have all we need for godliness. We have all we need to grow and develop. And in that, there is a peaceful, there is a satisfying, there is a restful confidence when we take God at his word and follow him. Those who follow the way of Jesus are blessed. Or let me put it another way. Those who follow the ways of Jesus are highly favored by the Heavenly Father. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May we, Follow Jesus in a way that reflects God's favor in our lives. Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for this passage. Help us, Lord, as we move through our day today, as we move through our coming week. Help us to 
have that spiritual sensitivity that simply says, Lord, change me. Show me where you want me to make adjustments. And help us, Lord, to make those changes. And Lord, help us to be, have that kind of confidence in others where we say, will you help me? Will you walk alongside me? Lord, may we be that kind of a community where we walk alongside one another, where we help one another be better in our relationship with you. And as a result, we know that not only will there be favor from you, but you will use that to be a light to others. Do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.